Book Five, Chapter Six of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ben Radcliffe. History of the Conquest of Mexico, by William H. Prescott, Book Five, Chapter Six. The Spanish commander reassured by the result of the deliberations in the tlascalan senate now resolved on active operations as the best means of dissipating the spirit of faction and discontent inevitably fostered by a life of idleness he proposed to exercise his troops at first against some of the neighboring tribes who had laid violent hands on such of the spaniards as confiding in their friendly spirit had passed through their territories among these were the Tepeyacans, a people often engaged in hostility with the Tlascalans, and who, as mentioned in a preceding chapter, had lately massacred twelve Spaniards in their march to the capital. An expedition against them would receive the ready support of his allies, and would assert the dignity of the Spanish name, much dimmed in the estimation of the natives by the late disasters. The Tepeyacans were a powerful tribe of the same primitive stock as the Aztecs, to whom they acknowledged allegiance. They had transferred this to the Spaniards on their first march into the country, intimidated by the bloody defeats of their Tlascalan neighbors. But, since the troubles in the capital, they had again submitted to the Aztec scepter. Their capital, now a petty village, was a flourishing city at the time of the conquest, situated in the fruitful plains that stretch far away towards the base of Orizaba. The province contained, moreover, several towns of considerable size, filled with a bold and warlike population. As these Indians had once acknowledged the authority of Castile, Cortes and his officers regarded their present conduct in the light of rebellion, and, in a council of war, it was decided that those engaged in the late massacre had fairly incurred the doom of slavery. Before proceeding against them, however, the general sent a summons requiring their submission, and offering full pardon for the past, but, in case of refusal, menacing them with the severest retribution. To this the Indians, now in arms, were turned a contemptuous answer, challenging the Spaniards to meet them in fight, as they were in want of victims for their sacrifices. Cortes, without further delay, put himself at the head of his small corps of Spaniards, and a large reinforcement of Tlascalan warriors. They were led by the young Chico Tenatl, who now appeared willing to bury his recent animosity, and desirous to take a lesson in war under the chief who had so often foiled him in the field. The Tepeyacans received their enemy on the borders. A bloody battle followed, in which the Spanish horse were somewhat embarrassed by the tall maize that covered part of the plain. They were successful in the end, and the Tepeyacans, after holding their ground like good warriors, were at length routed with great slaughter. A second engagement, which took place a few days after, was followed by like decisive results, and the victorious Spaniards with their allies, marching straightway on the city of Tepeyaca, entered it in triumph. No further resistance was attempted by the enemy, and the whole province, to avoid further calamities, eagerly tendered its submission. Cortes, however, inflicted the meditated chastisement on the places implicated in the massacre. The inhabitants were branded with a hot iron as slaves, and, after the royal fifth had been reserved, were distributed between his own men and the allies. The Spaniards were familiar with the system of repartimientos established in the islands. 
but this was the first example of slavery in New Spain. It was justified, in the opinion of the general and his military casuists, by the aggravated offenses of the party. The sentence, however, was not countenanced by the crown, which, as the colonial legislation abundantly shows, was ever at issue with the craving and mercenary spirit of the colonist. Satisfied with this display of his vengeance, Cortes now established his headquarters at Tepeyaca, which, situated in a cultivated country, afforded easy means for maintaining an army, while his position on the Mexican frontier made it a good point d'appui for future operations. The Aztec government, since it had learned the issue of its negotiations at Tlaxcala, had been diligent in fortifying its frontier in that quarter. The garrisons usually maintained there were strengthened, and large bodies of men were marched in the same direction with orders to occupy the strong positions on the borders. The conduct of these troops was in their usual style of arrogance and extortion, and greatly disgusted the inhabitants of the country. Among the places thus garrisoned by the Aztecs was Quauquecholan, a city containing 30,000 inhabitants, according to the historians, and lying to the southwest twelve leagues or more from the Spanish quarters. It stood at the extremity of a deep valley, resting against a bald range of hills, or rather mountains, and flanked by two rivers with exceedingly high and precipitous banks. The only avenue by which the town could be easily approached was protected by a stone wall more than twenty feet high and of great thickness. Into this place, thus strongly defended by art as well as by nature, the Aztec emperor had thrown a garrison of several thousand warriors, while a much more formidable force occupied the heights commanding the city. The cacique of this strong post, impatient of the Mexican yoke, sent to Cortes, inviting him to march to his relief, and promising a cooperation of the citizens and an assault on the Aztec quarters. The general eagerly embraced the proposal, and arranged with the cacique that, on the appearance of the Spaniards, the inhabitants should rise on the garrison. Everything succeeded as he had planned. No sooner had the Christian battalions defiled on the plain before the town than the inhabitants attacked the garrison with the utmost fury. The latter, abandoning the outer defenses of the place, retreated to their own quarters in the principal Teocali, where they maintained a hard struggle with their adversaries. In the heat of it, Cortes, at the head of his little body of horse, rode into the place and directed the assault in person. The Aztecs made a fierce defense, but fresh troops constantly arriving to support the assailants, the works were stormed, and every one of the garrison was put to the sword. The Mexican forces, meanwhile, stationed on the neighboring eminences, had marched down to the support of their countrymen in the town, and formed an order of battle in the suburbs, where they were encountered by the Tlaxcalan levies. They mustered, said Cortes, speaking of the enemy, at least thirty thousand men, and it was a brave sight for the eye to look on, such a beautiful array of warriors glistening with gold and jewels and variegated featherwork. The action was well contested between the two Indian armies. The suburbs were set on fire, and, in the midst of the flames, Cortes and his squadrons, rushing on the enemy, at length broke their array, and compelled them to fall back in disorder into the narrow gorge of the mountain, from which they had lately descended. The pass was rough and precipitous. Spaniards and Tlaxcalans followed close in the rear, and the light troops, scaling the high wall of the valley, poured down on the enemy's flanks. The heat was intense, and both parties were so much exhausted by their efforts that it was with difficulty, says the chronicler, that the one could pursue, or the other fly. They were not too weary, however, to slay, 
the Mexicans were routed with terrible slaughter. They found no pity from their Indian foes, who had a long account of injuries to settle with them. Some few sought refuge by flying higher up into the fastness of the Sierra. There they were followed by their indefatigable enemy, until, on the bald summit of the ridge, they reached the Mexican encampment. It covered a wide tract of ground. Various utensils, ornamented dresses, and articles of luxury were scattered around, and the number of slaves and attendants showed the barbaric pomp with which the nobles of Mexico went on their campaigns. It was a rich booty for the victors, who spread over the deserted camp and loaded themselves with the spoil, until the gathering darkness warned them to descend. Cortez followed up the blow by assaulting the strong town of Itzocan, held also by a Mexican garrison, and situated in the depths of a green valley watered by artificial canals, and smiling in all the rich abundance of this fruitful region of the plateau. The place, though stoutly defended, was stormed and carried. The Aztecs were driven across a river which ran below the town, and, although the light bridges that traversed it were broken down in the flight, whether by design or accident, the Spaniards, fording and swimming the stream as they could, found their way to the opposite bank, followed up the chase with the eagerness of bloodhounds. Here, too, the booty was great, and the Indian auxiliaries flocked by thousands to the banners of the chief who so surely led them on to victory and plunder. Soon afterwards, Cortez returned to his headquarters of Tepeyaca. Thence he dispatched his officers on expeditions which were usually successful. Sandoval, in particular, marched against the large body of the enemy lying between the camp and Veracruz, defeated them in two decisive battles, and thus restored the communications with the port. The result of these operations was the reduction of that populous and cultivated territory which lies between the great volcano on the west and the mighty skirts of Orizaba on the east. Many places, also, in the neighboring province of Michtecapan, acknowledged the authority of the Spaniards, and others from the remote region of Oaxaca sent to claim their protection. The conduct of Cortes towards his allies had gained him credit for disinterestedness and equity. The Indian cities in the adjacent territory appealed to him, as their umpire, in their differences with one another, and cases of disputed succession in their governments were referred to his arbitration. By his discreet and moderate policy, he insensibly acquired an ascendancy over their councils, which had been denied to the ferocious Aztec. His authority extended wider and wider every day, and a new empire grew up in the very heart of the land, forming a counterpoise to the colossal power which had so long overshadowed it. Cortes now felt himself strong enough to put in execution the plans for recovering the capital, over which he had been brooding ever since the hour of his expulsion. He had greatly undervalued the resources of the Aztec monarchy. He was now aware, from bitter experience, that, to vanquish it, his own forces, and all he could hope to muster, would be incompetent without a very extensive support from the Indians themselves. A large army would, moreover, require large supplies for its maintenance, and these could not regularly be obtained during a protracted siege without the friendly cooperation of the natives. On such support he might now safely calculate from Tlaxcala and the other Indian territories whose warriors were so eager to serve under his banners. His past acquaintance with them had instructed him in their national character and system of war, while the natives who had fought under his command, if they had caught little of the Spanish tactics, had learned to act in concert with the white men and to obey him implicitly as their commander. This was a considerable improvement in such wild and disorderly levies, and greatly augmented the strength derived from numbers.
Experience showed that in a future conflict with the capital it would not do to trust the causeways, but that to succeed he must command the lake. He proposed, therefore, to build a number of vessels, like those constructed under his orders in Montezuma's time, and afterwards destroyed by the inhabitants. For this he had still the services of the same experienced shipbuilder, Martin Lopez, who, as we have seen, had fortunately escaped the slaughter of the melancholy knight. Cortes now sent this man to Tlaxcala with order to build thirteen brigantines, which might be taken to pieces and carried on the shoulders of the Indians to be launched on the waters of Lake Texcuco. The sails, rigging, and ironwork were to be brought from Veracruz, where they had been stored since the removal of the dismantled ships. It was a bold conception, that of constructing a fleet to be transported across forest and mountain before it was launched on its destined waters. But it suited the daring genius of Cortes, who, with the cooperation of his staunch Tlaxcalan confederates, did not doubt his ability to carry it into execution. It was with no little regret that the general learned at this time the death of his good friend Mashishka, the old lord of Flascala, who had stood by him so steadily in the hour of adversity. He had fallen a victim to that terrible epidemic, the smallpox, which was now sweeping over the land like fire over the prairies, smiting down prince and peasant, and adding another to the long train of woes that followed the march of the white men. It was imported into the country, it is said, by a negro slave, in the freight of Narvaez. It first broke out in Kempoala. The poor natives, ignorant of the best mode of treating the loathsome disorder, sought a relief in their usual practice of bathing in cold water, which greatly aggravated their trouble. From Kempoala it spread rapidly over the neighboring country, and, penetrating through Tlaxcala, reached the Aztec capital, where Montezuma's successor, Cuitlahua, fell one of its first victims. Thence it swept down towards the borders of the Pacific, leaving its path strewn with the dead bodies of the natives, who, in the strong language of a contemporary, perished in heaps like cattle stricken with the moraine. It does not seem to have been fatal with the Spaniards, many of whom, probably, had already had the disorder. The death of Mashishka was deeply regretted by the troops, who lost in him a true and most efficient ally. With his last breath he commended them to his son and successor, and the great beings whose coming into the country had been so long predicted by the oracles. He expressed a desire to die in the profession of the Christian faith. Cortes no sooner learned his condition than he dispatched Father Olmedo to Tlaxcala. The friar found that Mashishka had already caused a crucifix to be placed before his sick couch as the object of his adoration. After explaining, as intelligibly as he could, the truths of revelation, he baptized the dying chieftain, and the Spaniards had the satisfaction to believe that the soul of their benefactor was exempted from the doom of eternal perdition that hung over the unfortunate Indian who perished in his unbelief. Their late brilliant successes seemed to have reconciled most of the disaffected soldiers to the prosecution of the war. There were still a few among them, the Secretary Duero, Bermudez the Treasurer, and others high in office, or wealthy Hidalgos, who looked with disgust on another campaign, and now loudly reiterated their demand of a free passage to Cuba. To this, Cortes, satisfied with the support on which he could safely count, made no further objection. Having once given his consent, he did all in his power to facilitate their departure and provide for their comfort. He ordered the best ship at Veracruz to be placed at their disposal, to be well supplied with provisions and everything necessary for the voyage, 
and sent Alvarado to the coast to superintend the embarkation. He took the most courteous leave of them, with assurances of his own unalterable regard. But, as the event proved, those who could part from him at this crisis had little sympathy for his fortunes, and we find Duero not long afterwards in Spain, supporting the claims of Velasquez before the emperor, in opposition to those of his former friend and commander. The loss of these few men was amply compensated by the arrival of others, whom fortune most unexpectedly threw in his way. The first of these came in a small vessel sent from Cuba by the governor, Velasquez, with stores from the colony at Veracruz. He was not aware of the late transactions in the country, and of the discomfiture of his officer. In the vessel came dispatches, it is said, from Fonseca, bishop of Burgos, instructing Narvaez to send Cortes, if he had not already done so, for trial to Spain. The alcalde of Veracruz, agreeably to the general's instructions, allowed the captain of the bark to land, who had no doubt that the country was in the hands of Narvaez. He was undeceived by being seized, together with his men, so soon as they had set foot on shore. The vessel was then secured, and the commander and his crew, finding out their error, were persuaded without much difficulty to join their countrymen in Tlaxcala. A second vessel, sent soon after by Velasquez, shared the same fate, and those on board consented also to take their chance in the expedition under Cortes. About the same time, Garay, the emperor of Jamaica, fitted out three ships with an armed force to plant a colony on the Panuco, a river which pours into the gulf a few degrees north of Villarica. Garay persisted in establishing his settlement, in contempt of the claims of Cortes, who had already entered into a friendly communication with the inhabitants of that region. But the crews experienced such a rough reception from the natives on landing, and lost so many of them, that they were glad to take to their vessels again. One of these foundered in a storm, the others put into the port of Veracruz to restore the men, much weakened by hunger and disease. Here they were kindly received, their wants supplied, their wounds healed, when they were induced, by the liberal promises of Cortes, to abandon the disastrous service of their employer, and enlist under his own prosperous banner. The reinforcements obtained from these sources amounted to a full hundred and fifty men, well provided with arms and ammunition, together with twenty horses. By the strange concurrence of circumstances, Cortes saw himself in possession of the supplies he most needed, that, too, from the hands of his enemies, whose costly preparations were thus turned to the benefit of the very man whom they were designed to ruin. His good fortune did not stop here. A ship from the Canaries touched at Cuba, freighted with arms and military stores from the adventurers in the New World. Their commander heard here of the recent discoveries in Mexico, and thinking it would afford a favorable market for him, directed his course to Veracruz. He was not mistaken. The Alcade, by the general's orders, purchased both ship and cargo, and the crews, catching the spirit of adventure, followed their countrymen into the interior. There seemed to be a magic in the name of Cortes, which drew all who came within hearing of it under his standard. Having now completed the arrangements for settling his new conquests, there seemed to be no further reason for postponing his departure to Tlaxcala. He was first solicited by the citizens of Tepeaca to leave a garrison with him, to protect them from the vengeance of the Aztecs. Cortes acceded to this request, and, considering the central position of the town favorable for maintaining his conquests, resolved to plant a colony there. For this object he selected sixty of his soldiers, most of whom were disabled by wounds or infirmity. He appointed the alcades, 
regidores, and other functionaries of a civic magistracy, the place be called Segura de la Fontera, or Security of the Frontier. It received valuable privileges as a city, a few years later, from the Emperor Charles V, and rose to some consideration in the age of the conquest. But its consequence soon after declined. Even its Castilian name, with the same caprice which has decided the fate of more than one name in our own country, was gradually supplanted by its ancient one, and the little village of Tepeyaca is all that now commemorates the once flourishing Indian capital and the second Spanish colony in Mexico. While at Segura, Cortes wrote that celebrated letter to the emperor, the second in the series, so often cited in the preceding pages. It takes up the narrative with the departure from Veracruz, and exhibits in a brief and comprehensive form the occurrences up to the time at which we are now arrived. In the concluding page, the general, after noticing the embarrassments under which he labors, says, in his usual manly spirit, that he holds danger and fatigue light in comparison with the attainment of his object, and that he is confident a short time will restore the Spaniards to their former position, and repair all of their losses. He notices the resemblance of Mexico, and many of its features and productions, to the mother country, and requests that it may henceforth be called New Spain of the Ocean Sea. He finally requests that a commission may be sent out at once to investigate his conduct and to verify the accuracy of his statements. This letter, which was printed at Seville the year after its reception, has been since reprinted and translated more than once. It excited a great sensation at the court, and among the friends of science generally. The previous discoveries of the New World had disappointed the expectations which had been formed after the solution of the grand problem of its existence. They had brought to light only rude tribes, which, however gentle and inoffensive in their manner, were still in the primitive stages of barbarism. Here was an authentic account of a vast nation, potent and populous, exhibiting an elaborate social polity, well advanced in the arts of civilization, occupying a soil that teemed with mineral treasures and with a boundless variety of vegetable products, stores of wealth, both natural and artificial, that seemed, for the first time, to realize the golden dreams in which the great discoverer of the new world had so fondly, and in his own day, so fallaciously indulged. Well might the scholar of that age exult in the revelation of these wonders, which so many had long, but in vain, desired to see. With this letter went another to the emperor, signed, as it would seem, by nearly every officer and soldier in the camp. It expiated on the obstacles thrown in the way of the expedition by Velasquez and Narvaez, and the great prejudice this had caused to the royal interests. It then sent forth the services of Cortes, and besought the emperor to confirm him in his authority, and not allow any interference with one who, from his personal character, had intimate knowledge of the land and its people, and the attachment of his soldiers, was the best man qualified in all the world to achieve the conquest of the country. It added not a little to the perplexities of Cortes, that he was still in entire ignorance of the light in which his conduct was regarded in Spain. He had not even heard whether his despatches, sent a year preceding from Veracruz, had been received. Mexico was as far removed from all intercourse with the civilized world as if it had been placed at the Antipodes. Few vessels had entered, and none had been allowed to leave its ports. The governor of Cuba, an island distant but a few days' sail, was yet ignorant, as we have seen, of the fate of his armament. On the arrival of every new vessel or fleet on these shores, Cortes might well doubt whether it brought aid to his undertaking, or a royal commission to supersede him. His sanguine spirit relied on the former, 
though the latter was much more probable, considering the intimacy of his enemy, the governor, with Bishop Fonseca. It was the policy of Cortes, therefore, to lose no time, to push forward his preparations, lest another should be permitted to snatch the laurel now almost within his grasp. Could he but reduce the Aztec capital, he felt that he should be safe, and that, in whatever light his irregular proceedings might now be viewed, his services in that event would far more than counterbalance them in the eyes both of the crown and of the country. The general wrote, also, to the royal audience at St. Domingo, in order to interest them in his cause. He sent four vessels to the same island, to obtain a further supply of arms and ammunition, and, the better to stimulate the cupidity of adventurers, and allure them to the expedition, he added specimens of the beautiful fabrics of the country, and of its precious metals. The funds for procuring these important supplies were probably derived from the plunder gathered in the late battles, and the gold which, as already remarked, had been saved from the general wreck by the Castilian convoy. It was the middle of December when Cortes, having completed all his arrangements, set out on his return to Tlaxcala, ten or twelve leagues distant. He marched in the van of the army, and took the way of Cholula. How different was his condition from that in which he had left the Republican capital not five months before! His march was a triumphal procession, displaying the various banners and military ensigns taken from the enemy, long files of captives, and all the rich spoils of conquest gleaned from many a hard-fought field. As the army passed through the towns and villages, the inhabitants poured out to greet them, and, as they drew near to La Scala, the whole population, men, women, and children, came forth celebrating their return with songs, dancing, and music. Arches decorated with flowers were thrown across the street through which they passed, and a Tlaxcalan orator addressed the general on his entrance to the city, and a lofty panegyric on his late achievements, proclaiming him the avenger of the nation. Amidst this pomp and triumphal show, Cortes and his principal officers were seen clad in deep mourning in honor of their friend Mashishka, and this tribute of respect to the memory of their venerated ruler touched the Tlaxcalans more sensibly than all the proud display of military trophies. The general's first act was to confirm the son of his deceased friend in the succession, which had been contested by an illegitimate brother. The youth was but twelve years of age, and Cortes prevailed on him without difficulty to follow his father's example and receive baptism. He afterwards knighted him with his own hand, the first instance, probably, of the order of chivalry being conferred on an American Indian. The elder Chico Tencatl was also persuaded to embrace Christianity, and the example of their rulers had its obvious effect in preparing the minds of the people for the reception of the truth. Cortes, whether from the suggestions of Olmedo or from the engrossing nature of his own affairs, did not press the work of conversion further at this time, but wisely left the good seed already sown to ripen in secret, till time should bring forth the harvest. The Spanish commander, during his short stay in Tlaxcala, urged forward the preparations for the campaign. He endeavored to drill the Tlaxcalans and give them some idea of European discipline and tactics. He caused new arms to be made, and the old ones to be put in order, Powder was manufactured with the aid of sulphur, obtained by some adventurous cavaliers from the smoking throat of Popocatépetl. The construction of the brigantines went forward prosperously under the direction of Lopez, with the aid of the Tlaxcalans. Timber was cut in the forest, and pitch, an article unknown to the Indians, was obtained from the pines on the neighboring Sierra de Malinche. The rigging and other appurtenances were transported by the Indian Timanes from Villa Rica, and by Christmas, 
the work was so far advanced that it was no longer necessary for Cortes to delay the march to Mexico. End of Book 5, Chapter 6